welcome to The Art of Being a Mum, the podcast where we hear from mothers who are creators and artists, sharing their joys and issues around trying to be a mother and continue to make art. My name's Alison Newman. I'm a singer, songwriter and mother of two boys from regional South Australia. I have a passion for mental wellness and a background in early childhood education. for joining me. My guest today is Dr Melanie Cooper. Melanie is a visual artist and an art historian from Adelaide, South Australia and a mother of two. Melanie combines painting and drawing with a mix of knitting, crochet, stitching and rug making techniques in her art. In this episode we chat a lot about art history as Melanie's expertise in the long 18th century allows us to delve into the role and treatment of artistic women during this era. This episode contains discussion around postnatal depression. Thank you for coming on. It's an absolute pleasure to have you and I'm excited about the different sort of things that you might be able to share as your role as an art historian but you're also a visual artist so let's start with that. Why don't you tell us about your own art practice? My art practice is pretty diverse. I, as with my um, other work as well, I kind of consider myself to be an interdisciplinary artist. So I'm primarily a painter, but I also work across textiles and drawing and, um, you know, just a lot of, a lot of different things. I've been making for as long as I can remember, like even as a child, I was, I've always been making stuff. My work is very personal to me. It's very, it's, I guess it's a way for me to articulate things that I find very difficult to communicate verbally or in written language. I'm just kind of really interested in um, my, I mean, of course, my own experience, but also the spaces in between thoughts and ideas and experience and memory. Like, you know, the things that we can't see, I try really hard to um, not just document experience and those kinds of things, but also to kind of try and make my own um, thoughts and feelings visible in some form. So it's it's a way for me to reconcile a whole heap of thinking and a whole heap of experience, but in a way that's really tangible. And so in a lot of ways, it's all about the process for me. The The end point is always you know, a great thing because people can actually see it, but it's kind of, it, it feels like it's work that's never finished because I need to keep going. And it's almost ritualistic in a way, I guess, because I'm kind of quite often repeating myself. Like for example, in textiles, I'm using lots of the same sort of stitches. And as I'm doing that, I'm thinking and kind of integrating all of those ideas and thoughts and memories and you know, and and responses to place as well. I just kind of draw lots of connections from the outside world and sort of it kind of comes in and then I sort of spit it back out into some sort of form. Like, you know, like, <laughs> um, I don't I don't really it's a really, really hard thing to explain. Like it's just it it makes sense to me anyway. Um and hopefully when people when people look at it, hopefully they kind of, you know, bring their own um ideas to it as well, their own responses and there's no right or wrong answer. I'm not trying to deliver a precise message, you know, and people don't have to have a, a perfect takeaway from it as long as they're kind of, you know, respond to it in some way. I'm happy. So, And that is the yeah. great thing about art, I think, too, in any of its forms, that people will take um, what they need from it, I suppose, in their own interpretation of what, what they're in their life or what they're going through or anything like that. 
So you're working with textiles. Melanie, what kind of materials are you working with there? So um, with the with my textiles, um, this is a little bit confusing for people sometimes. I consider that to be part of my painting practice. So I work with textiles in the same way that, I, I mean, I know it's a different material, but the way that I approach that practice is the same way that I approach my painting, the same ideas and the same motivations and the same kinds of thinking. But I use knitting and crochet um, and I also use traditional rug making techniques um, and just a little bit of stitching as well, but predominantly things like um, punching, which is punching through a hessian surface with a, a needle and um, knitting and crocheting pieces of fabric that I sort of manipulate and stitch down and um, yeah, explore with. It, that kind of material, material process is um, a really good way for me to sort of like think through a whole heap of stuff and I kind of figure it out as I go. I'm very intuitive. I don't really sort of sit down and draw up a plan or anything. I kind of work it out as I go. Yeah. The end product, of course, is always really important. You know, you, you do want people to um, engage with something that you're really proud of um, and it needs to be aesthetically um, appealing in some way, um, whether, whether that's a really positive thing or, you know, something that's a bit more challenging for people, that's cool. Um, but it really is, like, the, the, for me, the whole, it's the process, you know. Um, it's, the end product is really, really important, of course, but the process, I mean, I wouldn't, I don't know that I would do it if it wasn't for the process, you know what I mean? Like I'm not just making stuff to decorate things. We've like, we've got enough decoration. It's more, yeah, I don't, I don't know. It's, it's something that I still need to think about putting into words because I find it really, really difficult. Mm. Yeah. It's kind of um, the, the process of experimentation and exploring and just finding, finding out how far you can push something is really fun and really interesting as well. Yeah, yeah. so like new techniques and and working with things in different ways and that sort of yeah. stuff. very fortunate to have a son who is almost 18 and a daughter who is almost 11 so they're quite far apart in age um, but they're just incredible little humans um, you know with very diff different needs at the moment um, they're both still at school obviously and um, you know they're both doing their own thing um, and you know I'm yeah, they're both, they're both very strong personalities and, of course, that comes with its own um, challenges sometimes, but I'm actually really proud of the relationship that I have with them both. Um, we're really good mates. So I think, um, yeah, I, I love um, my children very dearly, as all mothers do, I'm sure. Yeah. Yeah. You say there's seven years between your two. I've got seven years between my two. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Some people think, wow, that's huge. Um, and, and in some ways it is, but in some ways it's not either. It's, it's a funny thing, isn't it? Oh, yeah. And it's, I think it, yeah. it'll, I'll be interested to see how they go as they get older because my oldest is 12, uh, 13, and my little one's about to turn six. So at the moment they have times when they absolutely cannot stand each other. But I think oh, sure. as they get older um, and Digby comes out of that little, little person stage, they might, <laughs> I mean, they get on great. Don't get me wrong, but things might not be quite as um, explosive. <laughs> That's the word. Oh, do you know, 
honestly, things can be quite explosive with my kids as well. And like, that's why I say, you know, they're both very strong personalities. They're both amazing. Then they're both very, very clever. And um, they know how to test each other. And they do, they, they do get explosive. But the funny thing is, as intense as that is sometimes, they also have this really intense love for each other. It's and it's crazy. Yeah. Like sometimes I'll just walk into a room and I'll, I'm like, oh my god, you guys are having a hug right now. Yeah. What's going on? Is everything okay? <laughs> like, yeah, it's fine, mum. It's totally fine. Are you yeah. sure? Yeah, and it's also because I think they're at very different places in their own development. Like they have very, very different needs. Like you know, Seth, my son, um, he at the moment he just really needs his own space. Sometimes he needs his own privacy and all those sorts of things. Like he's nearly an adult. And his little sister likes to kind of walk into his room unannounced and things. And he's just like, oh, my God, get out. And, you know, he's never like he's just playing a game or something. It's not anything major, but he's just like, leave me alone. Um, and she, yeah, of course, you know, sometimes she just wants to be around her big brother. But And he does it to her too, though. You know, sometimes yeah. she'll be quite you know, she'll be sitting on the couch or in her room doing her own thing and he'll come in and he'll be like all over and, you know, just in the mood for a joke and she's like, oh, no. Yeah. And then it all kind of kicks off and I have to, yeah. So, yeah. yeah. It's also really lovely, though, when you um, find them playing. Like, you know, when they, they take their own initiative to get the ball, go outside and kick around the backyard together, that kind of stuff's really lovely. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Something good is here. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So you said before you've been creating your pretty much your whole life. Yeah. How, how has that sort of changed then as you had your children, as they came into your life? Were you, were you starting to find that challenge, the, the balance between your art and, and your role as a mother? At, um, in different times of my life, definitely. Um, so I can't, I mean, there's a few different things I could say about this sort of stuff. Like, you know, before having kids, I really believed that I needed one full solid day to get something done. You know, I always had this kind of idea that you had to have a full day. Um, and if you didn't have that full day, nine to five kind of idea, whatever those hours were, it really, like, there's no point. But I've since learned, especially with my second, with Scarlett, half an hour, you can actually achieve so much in half an hour because you, sometimes that's all you get. And I mean, it, it kind of fluctuates um, depending on what's going on with them and where you are into in state, like the stage of their life and stuff. Um, there's been times where I found it incredibly difficult. Like with my painting practice, for example, um, I like when I had my son Seth, I found that really difficult to get back into for a while because I had uh, quite uh, bad postnatal depression. Um, so that kind of was a bit of a block for me for a while. Um, but then after a period of time, I kind of learnt, when I was sort of working through that, I was drawing and things, but I kind of went back to knitting, which is something that I've kind of always been doing since I was like about five. But then I sort of realised, you know, this is a really portable medium and I can just pick it up and put it down. I don't have to go out in the studio. So I, I, I think that's where it kind of really started um, becoming this thing that I incorporated into my practice and over time I kind of just kept pushing it more and developing it more and that's so that's always been there like I'm always 
you know, carrying around knitting or crochet because it is so portable and I can't sit on the couch and not do things. So if I have to sit on the couch and nurse a baby or rock a baby to sleep, I'm kind of, you know, it's always like there's, um, it's, there's different ways that you can still be creative without having to go out into the studio, without having to have an entire day and, you know, try and figure out all the other logistics around that. So I've just, I think I've um, always sort of looked for ways that I can still fit stuff in. Um, and, you know, like uh, when they're not sleeping and stuff, that's really good thinking time. So you can use that time in the middle of the night to kind of think about what do I need to do tomorrow? And you start planning and organising your thoughts so that when you do have that time, you can just jump straight in. You're not kind of lost, not knowing where to go or what direction to take or what needs to be done. You can just sort of like jump in and be productive. And I think that's that kind of motivates you and gives you the energy to keep going as well. Yeah. I think that's the thing that um, that motherhood does and like, I don't want to say adversity, but, you know, just the challenges sometimes that you face and the things that you kind of find yourself up against that you weren't prepared for. I think that's really taught me that, yeah, actually, I'm really good at improvising and um, and that's really fun in itself too, because sometimes you kind of, you end up with outcomes you couldn't predict or better outcomes than if you planned and organised everything completely perfectly and down to the last minute like sometimes you just kind of go you know you do things by the seat of your pants and you get out the other side of it you think wow that's actually really great and that could lead to something else you know like never in a million years would I like when I was painting in art school I didn't think that I would be you know knitting in my actual painting practice I kind of thought oh that's the thing that I do when I watch tv and you know it's not really part of my my serious art career but it now it definitely is yeah it's it's fun it's yeah. fun I think yeah. learn so much from being a mum yeah and having to having to restructure your own thinking and just make things happen you know not just sit around waiting for the time but actually just making that time mm. you have to otherwise it will never happen yeah the thing for me as well like it's almost like a it's a compulsion for me to make like and it always has been even as a kid like I just always have to make something and it doesn't always have to be like a big finished painting sometimes it is just you know something with a lump of air dry clay or you know a drawing in the mud out in the backyard or something like I've just always had to do something and um yeah it's a it's a compulsion I think um but it's also I was thinking about this the other day um I think it's also about making a space for yourself like making art has, or even just making stuff has just always been a way for me to take space for myself even as a child you know and I think that's just become more and more important as an adult when you've got more responsibilities and have to divide your time more mm. yeah it becomes more challenging but then also probably more important to do it as an adult absolutely <laughs> it's like mental health yeah. <laughs> you know and it's and it's so um connected with looking yeah looking after yourself and and for me it's very much part of my identity I think like it's it's not like um the job the great job that I've got that I go to and I'll retire from one day it's like something that I think is always has always been a part of who I am Mm, definitely you'll always have that it's yeah it's, it's yeah. Not one day you're just gonna hang it up and go right oh that's finished now I'm retired <laughs> what do I do with yeah, exactly <laughs> exactly 
yes it's um sometimes it would be nice to sort of like bundle it up and pack it away but it's no it's that's no not an option I don't think <laughs> I wanted to ask you just you talked about your painting how you never thought that your knitting would become part of you the way I think you said your serious art practice um how mm. did it how did it become part did you one day just decide to combine it like how did it physically happen <laughs> I suppose um uh, it's a very it's a very good question um so when I was in art school I I realized that I detested oil painting and I and so I couldn't do life painting anymore and I wasn't really interested in that anyway and so I dropped out of that subject and I had to do another elective and sort of make that as like a not just a, an elective subject but like a major subject and it was rug making and I was like wow this sounds really cool and it's using wool awesome I'll do that <laughs> so I learned some techniques and um you know, just kind of played with that for a bit and then put it away. And when I, so I just, I kind of, I kind of just stuffed around with it a bit and um, picked it up, put it down and just sort of played with those ideas for a while. And I kind of experimented without really taking it very seriously. And then, um, you know, fast forward a couple of years, I um, became a member of a, a studio here in Adelaide called Floating Goose Studios. And I shared that space with um, several other artists. And at the time, I think there was 12 artists, but um, I had brought all my things from my old studio into the space and was unpacking stuff and messing around with things and just having a look at what I had. And one of the things that I had was um, a half finished um, rug or wall hanging. I wasn't really sure what to call it at the time. I pulled it out, I was looking at it and one of my friends looked at it and said, oh, what's this? And I was, oh, just this, thing that I've just been playing with and he's kind of like oh that's that's kind of really cool maybe you should think about finishing it I was like really okay and you know I just wasn't at that time I just wasn't really sure what I was doing because you know a whole heap of other stuff had just happened and I was coming through um, a difficult place but I just kind of thought, you know, this is an easy thing to pick up and just go on with and I'll, maybe I'll figure out what I'm doing next. And I just kind of kept working on this thing and then it became a finished piece and I was like, wow. And there was just this one little end bit and I thought, I don't really know what to do in this end bit. And I was mucking around with some knitting at home and I just kind of, something told me or compelled me to put that piece of knitted fabric onto the rug and just see what it looks like. And so I was just like, wow, this is another way of combining surfaces and textures and different techniques. And I actually really kind of like what's happening. And so that's what I started doing there. I sort of started messing around with it. And I was really excited by what I had discovered. And so um, I just kind of thought, how, what can I do next? And so I started making lengths of knitted fabric and started stuffing about with it in the next pieces. And it just kind of exploded from there. And I kind of realized, wow, I can actually use knitting in the same way that I do um, you know brush strokes and different ways of applying paint I can actually just make the paint and manipulate it and stitch it down or do something with it and um, yeah I, the more I do it the more I do the more ideas I come up with and sometimes my head's just like swimming with ideas I get really anxious because I don't know if I'm going to get time to do it all because yeah. you know 
that's the exciting thing about knitting. It's only, and especially crochet too, it's only a couple of stitches, but the different ways that you can combine those stitches with different materials and different ways of com like different combinations, you end up with so many different kinds of results. Mm. So it's exciting. And yeah, it just kind of, it just kind of unraveled un like a very natural process. It just kind of kept um, expanding yeah. from there. That's yeah. Really, that's a really awesome story. And I think that's the thing about, um, that's the thing that I'm really grateful for being in that studio at that time, because, you know, if it hadn't have been for someone walking past and looking at it and going, yeah, that's pretty cool. Maybe you should see what happens if you finish it. Like just that little bit of encouragement from a friend. It was like, yeah, okay, maybe this is worth thinking about. Mm. And, you know, the same friend um, was really amazing too. I credit him with um, encouraging me when I had my exhibition, my first solo after that. Well, not my first solo, but my first solo for a number of years. He sort of said to me, you know, the back is the back of that piece is really cool. Maybe you should think about hanging it so people can see the back as well. And that's that was another really um, important part of developing my practice as well. He sounds like a pretty useful bloke to have around. <laughs> yeah, well, I think, yeah, he is. He's um, a very generous um, person. And I think that's also one of the virtues and one of the great um, advantages of being in a studio with other people working around you because sometimes you can give each other that sort of feedback or, you know, just a comment of someone walking past um, is enough to make you think twice about, yeah, actually maybe I won't throw that in the bin, you know. Maybe that is worth um spending some more time on and that's been that's been incredibly valuable to me so i am very i'll always be grateful for that so you've done also yarn bombing you create yeah. whatever you're going to make your knitting or your crocheting and then you go and put it out on structures in the town or in the city yes yes I have and um, I've had a lot of fun doing that um, with a group of friends um, we haven't done anything for a while I tried to make something happen just after COVID but it kind of fell through um, that's a whole other story but um, yeah that's something that I got an enormous kick out of I have to say because I, it's it's a bit different now but originally the idea was you make something and you attach it to a public structure somewhere, but you have to do it without being caught and without anyone seeing you because it's kind of illegal. <laughs> so it's kind of like, yeah, hardcore ladies hit the town, you know, <laughs> so much fun. The first time, the first tag I ever did was just like this um, crochet length of bright blue fabric, kind of like a scarf. And I went down um, one of the alleyways just off of Rundle Street and my heart was beating so loud. It was in the middle of the day and I was like, whipped it on around this pole, stitching it as fast as I could. And my heart was beating so loud. It was roaring in my ears. And then I skipped off down the street afterwards on such a high. Like, you know, it was just this, it was just this simple little band of blue, but it was like, yes, I've done this really cool um outlaw thing yeah you're so a rebel. it was enormously fun and then after that we were just um you know I kind of knit some bow ties and I attached these bow ties onto you know sculptures of people's heads and stuff 
down North Terrace and things and in the Botanic Gardens. But the really, the really cool thing was um, many years ago, I can't remember exactly what year it was, but there was this um, sort of like a street art festival thing that was happening. Um, a former student of mine, uh, Peter Drew, who's now done lots of lots and lots of other things, he was organising um, groups of people to to paint and um, you know sort of decorate mini skits. And so I can't I can't remember exactly where I found out about it. I think it might have been a Facebook page or something like that. There was an idea to cover it with knitting, like the the street yarn bombing stuff. And so I kind of just went on my own. I had no idea. I didn't had I didn't know anyone who was going to this thing. I just happened to meet this bunch of gorgeous women, very different ages, very different backgrounds, and they're all just making these squares to cover this dumpster. It was so much fun. And we just got along so well. And so we kind of over a period of time found ourselves in a group that we decided to call Eight Ply on the Sly. And it was enormous fun. We've done so many projects we did um you know there was a festival called called um OU street art festival um there was a whole exhibition in the festival theater there are a couple of banksies and other bits and pieces in there and we were asked to cover um I think they're called the Mallee tree poles outside um it's like an installation I'm not sure if it's still there but we covered these big long poles with you know, different lengths of fabric and attached insects and flowers and stuff to it. And that was so much fun. Um, but one of my favourite projects was um, a nonna, nonna Reckless, Julie Collins and I, we made a dress for the statue of Queen Victoria. And um, <laughs> we had it installed by the Adelaide City Council at like two o'clock in the morning. <laughs> They had they had cherry pickers and council workers attaching this big knitted dress with cable ties to the statue of Queen Victoria, and it was it was so much fun. And it was part like it was around Christmas time, so it was when the whole square was decorated with different things. And just going along um, to see that in the middle of the day and seeing all these people walking past it, stopping, looking, and taking photos of this thing that he'd made. It was just so much fun because you know you're just sort of like sitting there watching everybody else getting so much joy out of this thing that we just did it, yeah it was it was in, it was a lot of fun it was so much fun um yeah we we did a lot of stuff like that we've um you know done stuff for Matthew Flinders and Douglas Mawson one of my friends knit him a balaclava um we've done things for the Robert Burns statue at the front of the state library <laughs> Yeah, things like that. There's been lots of stuff that the group has done and it's just been wonderful. So you're still, yes, we you're have, still doing that? You're with, still with the, the group doing stuff now? Um, well, we were going to do a project for Christmas last year, back in November, and um, I don't know how to say it in a short way because I don't want to sort of... Uh, I don't want to sound negative, but we were asked to do a project and then um, the street that we were asked to do it on people on the the people in the street like the the business owners decided no we don't want that and that was really that was really sad and it, I found that really upsetting because for some of the people in the group they hadn't actually been able to work on anything 
um, as a group or for themselves for a long time. There was a um, one mum in there. I know that she was, you know, it was really important to her to get together and to do this thing because she hadn't done anything for herself for a really long time. And so all of a sudden we had this thing that was really exciting and we were, we were so excited about getting back together and doing something. And it was just taken away because of mismanagement and miscommunication. You know, like the person who was organising the thing and had asked us to do it hadn't spoken to the business owners properly. And so all of a sudden, she just sort of like sent me an email one day and said, you know what, sorry, they just don't want you here anymore. And it was devastating, actually. Mm. It was really, it was really sad. Like I was fine with it because I had my own stuff to go on with. But as I was saying, um, some of, some of the group members hadn't, hadn't been doing their own thing for a long time. And it, it was very important to them that we were doing it. And yeah, all of a sudden it just wasn't there. Mm. So, um, yeah, we, we do, we need to get back together um, and do something because I think, you know, we, we just had so much fun together. There's no reason that we haven't done anything for a while. I think it's just like the whole COVID thing and people being busy and life getting in the way. So I think, yeah, we just, we just need to do it. <laughs> we just, we just really need to, yeah, you know, put a date in the diary and get together and do it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, I mean, it's so much fun and, and we do, we all work together so well. We just have very different lives in very different directions. And I think that's, that's the only thing that kind of makes it a bit tricky sometimes. Yeah. 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 Um, when you were talking about when you put your pieces up and then you see people, their reaction to that, I get so much joy and I, it almost, it, it almost makes me feel like a little child. It reminds me of like Easter time when, when I was a kid and you'd be looking for your Easter eggs and you find them hidden in the garden and that amazing feeling of finding things. That's how I feel when I see people's creations all around the place. I just, I just love it. It's such a beautiful yeah. thing. <laughs> I love I it too love because, it. you know, I think the reason that I love it so much is because, um, you know, it is that generosity and that sharing and the joy but it's also like it kind of feels a little bit naughty or a little bit not naughty, but like a little bit, um, you know, people people being creative outside of the prescribed conventional spaces of institutions and galleries and high end things is kind of making things accessible. And it's also like the random accidental thing of um, finding stuff as well. It's, it's kind of, you know, I'm going to make this thing and I'm going to put it out there because I can. I'm not going to ask anybody's permission to do it not going to apply to do it I'm just going to do it and I love I love that it's so it's so much fun and it's um you know of course it's always with the best intentions but it's also a little bit you know it's very empowering actually I think it's really empowering I know it is for me yeah you know I I think it's incredibly generous too because you're not you're not um creating it with any sort of expectation of I mean, you are getting something back, but like, you know, it's not a monetary gain. You're doing it because you love it and because you know you're going to bring joy to people. And I think that's just beautiful. I wanted to utilise your expertise as an art historian throughout this discussion. Could you just let us know first what, the era or the period that you are really drawn to with your art history? Um, so my um, area of expertise is the 18th century. Um, so that's that's what I know most 
um, the deepest part of my knowledge and research has always has been the 18th century. Um, in saying that, um, I'm really uh, fascinated and um, have a really solid understanding of the 20th century as well because I've studied that in depth too. Um, but I also, of course, I'm interested in contemporary art, so art of the art that is being made now and the very recent past too. And I'm kind of, um, I don't know, I think researchers uh, like artists, they develop um, their interests and their ideas in lots of different directions. So at the moment, I'm kind of looking more at things like iconoclasm as well, which kind of stretches across all periods, really. Iconoclasm, for, for those who don't know, is um, the destruction or accidental or intentional of artworks or um, buildings and monuments and things like that too. Yeah. So what drew you to that? It's the 1700s, isn't it? If it's the 18th century, is that how it works? Yeah. I remember that yeah. from school. Yeah. <laughs> no, that's cool. Um, and, and to make things even more confusing, um, people have different definitions around time periods as well. Like, so for, um, for the 18th century, we used to say, oh, you know, that's 1700 to 1800. But the truth is most people now call it, like refer to that period as the long 18th century so it's sort of like t it straddles the late 17th sort of like 1685 1690 through to about 1820 and and people kind of debate um those precise years but it does kind of overlap centuries either side is that um, because of yeah. is that because of the work was it was the era of that art in that time or is that just how historians talk about time periods it's more a, around um, world events and things like that as well. It's not, it's not a, it's for some, I mean, the, the hard thing with art history, whatever period you're looking at, it's, we kind of like to think in nice sort of compartmentalised boxes with nice start and finish points. But the truth is, is things just overlap. Um, and, and there's not like one linear narrative or style or thing that's happening. There's lots of different things that are happening all at the same time. And we're only really starting to do a better job at recognising that now. There's multiple histories and multiple styles and things happening all at the same time. So really history, it's not like this one linear thing. It's like a big <laughs> spider web of, you know, and it's really messy. And that's, that's the thing that makes it really interesting and dynamic. But we're not very good at thinking about things that way. We insist on putting things in nice, neat little categories and everything has to have a neat time frame. Like it can't be like 1521 to 1673 because that just doesn't feel neat and contained for us. We have this need to contain things, which is crazy because that's not how time works all life. Yeah, that's <laughs> like, I must point out and acknowledge though that that's a very western way of thinking like I'm sure like I don't have the understanding to talk about this at length but you know other cultures and other other philosophies or other systems of doing things think about things in very different ways so what I'm referring to is def it's a western perspective it's not it doesn't account for everybody for sure yeah. so within that time period that long 18th century what what drew you to that era, I suppose? Like, how, why, why that period for you? This goes back to art school. <laughs> so my practice is very, very different to the 18th century. Like, my, my own arts practice is radically different. But 
the reason I was drawn to that is because when we went to, when I was in art school, we had to do art history and theory. And we had this lecturer in first year who was very handsome and very charismatic. And everybody hung on every word he said. And so we went to every lecture thinking, these lectures are amazing and they're brilliant. And I was one of the fans. <laughs> I thought he was wonderful. But there was this one subject that he did and it was kind of, I think it was called like the history of Western art or something like this. And he started with the caves of Lascaux and he kind of worked his way through lecture, lecture to lecture going through um, the history of Western art. And I remember this one day, he, um, I can't remember the name of the lecture, but he did the 18th century in one slide. <laughs> like I just, I, and like I just have to pause there because it still blows my mind. It totally blew me away. Like he'd gone, you know, one lecture might have been on surrealism and data, like an entire one-hour lecture on surrealism and data, which is a movement in 19, the 1920s, like, you know, um, a response to the wars and things quite it's co a complex movement um, but the 18th century he kind of did this thing where he put up an image um, by a painter called Fragonard he did a painting called The Swing he put this this slide up and I was fresh out of arts I mean fresh out of high school too so I was very young I really didn't know very much and he just put this slide up and, I, and everyone erupted into laughter. And he said, this is like the 18th century chocolate box, fluff and nonsense. That's it. See you later. Let's jump into the 19th century. And I was just kind of like, I remember sitting there thinking, why does everybody think this is funny? And why does he just wipe out an entire century with one slide? Like, to me, I was like, I had no interest in painting that way. I had no interest in that style for my own work at all but looking at that painting I thought wow this is actually really really skilled work it's really complex there's all these things happening in that picture I don't understand what it is but there's a lot more to this thing and I was just intrigued absolutely intrigued and then you know I've also saw films like Amadeus and um, you know, all the all the period movies and stuff, and I just kind of developed this love for, you know, the 18th and 19th centuries. And then when it went to study art history, I did four subjects and kept going. And, you know, the, my love for the 18th century grew. And I was kind of, was like, when I came to do my master's, I was like, do I do my master's on Australian abstraction? Do I do it on the 18th century? And then I went 18th century because I feel like I know and understand a lot about abstraction, but I don't really understand the 18th century enough. So that's what took me that way. And I think it's also because images of that period are very complex and they're very rich in iconography, which is, um, you know, the study of signs and symbols to kind of untangle what a picture is telling us. And I think that kind of tapped into my love for detective novels and Agatha Christie and solving the clues. So I think that's what drew me in the most um, was just, you know, again, fun, lots of fun. And, um, you know, that period is fascinating because so, so much is happening in a very, very short time frame when you think about it. So much stuff. Life is radically changing and we've, we've inherited so much of that. Um, for you know bad things as well as 
um, good things. In Within that period of time, there were lots of different movements or was it the same? Yeah. Yeah, so the, I'll just very, very quickly tell you that the difference between the 20th century and the, 18th, the long 18th century, the long 18th century is kind of broken up into three major styles. You could argue maybe four, but the 20th century is a very rapid succession of multiple movements. So there's lots of movements all throughout the century and some of those overlap as well. So, um, you know, I'd have to sit down and write them down and count off the top of my head, but lots and lots of movements happening very quickly. So some movements might kind of, you know, be defined by, I don't know, say a decade, but and they resurface and influence other artists as well. So there's lots of overlap and there's just lots of stuff happening. The 18th century is a century that um, has been neglected in research and scholarship until uh, up until about the last 10 or 20 years. Um, you know, people just didn't take it very seriously. So there's still a little bit of debate and a little bit like there's a lot of work to be done still. The start of the period, some people refer to as late Baroque, but it's really the Rococo, which is like the very highly decorative style um, and then the um, from the Rococo we move into neoclassicism which is you know the more classical austere kind of painting where it's all about heroic virtue and those kind of things leading up to the revolution and then around the time like after the revolution you have a movement called romanticism which kind of spills over into the 19th century and that's where you have artists like Turner doing those beautiful um images of shipwrecks and storms and things like that it's all it, we're going back to nature and the the power of nature and the sublime and those kinds of things so it's really like three yeah three movements in one century and they do overlap and some of those artists um so for example some of the Roco the artists working in the rococo style kind of they also you know depending on when they were born and who they were working for they do kind of creep into the other styles as well so some of the neoclassical artists move into romanticism, some of them don't. Some of the Rococo artists move into neoclassicism. It really depends on where they are. And I guess that yeah. too, that notion of things have to have a start and a finish, it just doesn't work like that. Things are all overlapping. and Yeah, um, and it's really informed and shaped by what's happening in um, the political and social cultural context as well. Like, you know, so for, the easy thing there is like the, the revolution the French Revolution had an enormous impact on artists. So you, you do see a lot of things happening in the artwork that's, you know, as what an art historian does is we look at works that are made in different time periods and try and understand them in the context that they were made in as well. And that helps us um, understand what people were, you know, concerned by and what people were thinking and how lives were lived at that period. Mm. Art historians tend to specialise um, like, for example, I, I specialise in the 18th century, but also look at contemporary art, also look at modern art. Sometimes I look a little bit at the 17th or the 19th, but I couldn't tell you very much about the Byzantine period, for example. There's just so much stuff out there. Um, art historians, we, we don't memorise dates and titles of paintings and things because that's connoisseurship. What we do is we look at objects and images as primary sources of material that can tell us it's kind of, it's like detective work, you know, historians look at letters and documents and things and um, to tell the story of a person or what's happening in a period of time. And that's what we're doing with um, objects and images. Um, we're 
you know, we're talking about the history of the work and the artist itself, but we're also recognising it doesn't, it nothing is made in a vacuum. Like, you know, um, artists are working in all different kinds of circumstances and political climates, and it really does shape what's being made and not just visual art, but music and literature as well. Yeah. I mean, I've I've given very very short brief overviews of things. I've very I've I have simplified things a lot. Yeah. But um, I think like for example, when I when I say um, you know, the 18th century has been a period that hasn't been as um loved up until now. It, it it's very different now. But when I started doing my masters, um, people were still dismissing the Rococo, which is like the earliest period of the 18th century. Um. There was some really groundbreaking research happening, and there were art historians really fighting for the um, for that area of the discipline to be taken seriously. And they've done amazing work since. But I think, you know, art history—it's like any other discipline, I guess. You know, it is susceptible to fashion. You know, um, sometimes uh, it's hot to, you know, study um, I don't know Australian colonial art. You know, I don't know, like it does yeah. go through fashion, but I think yeah, the 18th century really was quite overlooked. I'm not sure about the other disciplines, but definitely in art history, it was overlooked and not taken very seriously for a long time. Hmm. That, that's so interesting because, like you said, there was so much happening at that time. There was so much going on and so much changing. And then it's like, oh, we're not actually going to rate it. You know what I mean? <laughs> well, I can, again, I'll give you a very short answer for that. Um, Things like neoclassicism and romanticism, which happens later in the century, were studied and taken more seriously. Like I, you know, I like I was saying, I did um, sort of condense what I was saying and I simplified it a lot. They were taken seriously, um, much more seriously for a long time than the first part of the century, which is that period that I refer to or everyone refers to as the Rococo. And that is because when we look at and this is this is why that slide that I mentioned was laughed at because mm. it is so pretty it is so feminine it is so over the top decorative and it's ostentatious it's um you know it's just the height of frivolous for some people and you know people kind of look at that and they think oh that's so ridiculously chocolate box which is exactly what the lecturer said like there's it's all feminine decorative nonsense there's no substance to it and in that period of time you know women were um, powerful patrons and they were really helping to shape fashion and so you know sadly because there were so many women involved it was denigrated as fluff and nonsense and it's totally not like once you start researching and looking at those images properly and like looking at the culture and the social context of the period it was enormously sophisticated and very very progressive um but you know historic later historians you know sort of later later um from the 19th century in particular kind of looked back on that time and said oh it's it's all just feminine you know let's look at the stuff that's much more serious and you know, much more interesting because, you know, it's about war <laughs> and, um, you know, the forces of nature and exploration and things, which is, of course, fascinating, but that's that's really why um, people didn't take the early period of the 18th century seriously for a long time. Mm. Yeah, because it was too feminine. 
Isn't that lovely? <laughs> God. Yeah. Um, it's so just about flowers and puppies, you know, but there's a lot, there's so oh much more. God. That's hilarious. There's so it? much more. Yeah, uh, and it's it's a very simplistic view because, of course, they're really looking at, you know, um, paintings and fashion and things, but, you know, the Rococo, you have to look at what was happening in, um, you know, maths and architecture. Like there, there is that period of the Rococo period and that style, that movement informed mathematics <laughs> I don't understand how that is but it does I'm not a mathematician but I have read that it informed architecture and garden design and you know philosophy it it's incredibly rich period the artists were talking to you know writers and philosophers and musicians they were all generating and exchanging ideas in these really amazing communities yeah. yeah, like you said before, the community, having people together and yeah. bouncing ideas off of each other. So we, we briefly, you briefly touched on the involvement of women in that era. During that time, were women painting or were they more, like you said, the patrons of that era? So this this is really this is really really interesting. Um, so both um, in that period of time, you know, the I'm trying to think of how to make this a short story, not a very long one. <laughs> um, so in that period of time, women. Um, I've got to be careful how I say this because I'm not saying women were completely liberated from, you know systems of um, patriarchal oppression because they certainly weren't but women with money and power became very influential patrons so one patron in particular I'll give you one example Madame de Pompadour was the king's favorite she was a woman from a middle class background and she worked her way up and she became a very very influential patron of the arts um, and she was a very good friend to artists and philosophers, musicians, scientists. She was an intellectual woman and she held her own salons and she, yeah, she patronised, you know, she she commissioned artists to, and not just visual artists, but all kinds of artists to make work for her. And so that kind of patronage was really, really important to artists, you know, in sustaining their careers and their incomes, but also in shaping the visual culture of the time as well um so yes um women with money and power and privilege um were definitely heavily involved in um shaping the visual culture but artists female artists this is where it gets a little bit tricky there were some really and i'll use the word exceptional and some some art historians do use that term too there were exceptional art um, women artists who had the support to train in, um, you know, studios that of their brothers or their fathers, for example. Um, and at that time, women weren't allowed to go into the academies, except for a couple of women that we call the exceptional women. So, for example, Angelica Kaufman and Elizabeth Vigie Lebrun 
were two examples of female artists who worked in, like they entered, they were permitted entry into the French Academy and they became very successful artists and they worked for the Crown. Um, for example, Le Brun and Kaufman, they worked for the Queen's at the time as well, um, for Marie Antoinette. And so they were very good friends of very powerful people, but that was quite rare. It wasn't, it wasn't as um, common. It was, it was much, um, you know, I, I think, I think the thing about being a, a woman artist at that time was, you know, you really needed to have the support of men around you. Like you needed to, you know, have, especially early in your life, because you sort of started training as a child or as a very young adult, you really needed to have access to a studio. And that was really out of the reach for females, unless you had a brother or a father, you might've been helping um, them make their work in the studio and have access to materials. Someone might look at what you were doing and say, that's really, that's really great. We're going to try and get you some teaching. They might go and work with another artist and, you know, gain some more skills, but the process is much more difficult for a female to become a professional academic painter. There were also other artists who, um, and this is where it gets, again, I don't, don't want to go on and on too much because it's not an art history lesson, but there were other artists who um, worked in pastels, for example. They didn't do the traditional academic painting. They used pastels to make beautiful images of flowers and portraits and things, and some of those women were working very independent of the academy and that's how they sort of sustained their practice but they weren't considered professional in the same way that the um, members of the academy and the painters to the crown were so you, you had different um, groups I guess. The thing with um, gaining entry into the academy was that you had to you had to sort of like do a whole heap of training and learning first but then to enter into the academy, you had to paint what they what we call an academy reception piece. So it was always like it had to be a grand painting um, with a mythological or historical subject matter. It couldn't be a, a portrait or a landscape. It had to be like um, a religious work or something like that. And then that was judged. And if that was good enough, then they could enter into the academy. Um, but when I, I, I should say too, when I say exceptional for the women, it wasn't just that they were exceptionally talented or exceptionally good. What I mean by that is that women like Angelica Kaufman, for example, she, she was very successful. Um, she was an independent professional artist. She was considered exceptional, not just because of her talent, but the fact that she was a woman. You know, it's like women aren't really supposed to be good at these things. Women are you know, they're too imaginative, they're too irrational and emotional to be doing work in the same capacity as men, right? Wow. So because, because she's a woman, she's exceptional. And, it, and it's, it's a heartbreaking thing to say. Like, and I, I still, I find that really difficult because, you know, in, the, in that period, women, like Pompadour, for example, um, she was the, the king's favourite. She was a powerful patron. She was an intellectual. She, she was also a printmaker. She was doing all these amazing things. She was, a, she was, of course, very, very powerful and privileged because of the position she was in, but she was also someone who came from 
a middle class background and worked her way up. But these these women were standout figures, and we we call them exceptional because that's not that's not the normal life of a yeah. woman in that period. Like that, they are elite women, and even even when you do have um, privilege behind you, you still you still have to go the extra mile to you know advance yourself and to prove your capacity more than your male counterparts. Do you know you you have to work harder to get there and to keep that position mm. um and it's, i think it's really because men and women were considered to be completely opposite like men were the rational um creatures capable of higher thinking and um academic pursuit and women were nurturers and mothers and imaginative creatures prone to hysteria and <laughs> things like that that's exactly how they spoke about them you know the women Women had the creative impulse, but they're also too um, imaginative and emotional to sort of harness those qualities into a into a rational way to make something more uh, more um, worthy of the academy. For example, I don't really know how to explain it. It's yeah, they they couldn't harness all of that stuff that creative people have in a way that was um, balanced and reasoned enough to achieve, you know a great work of art yeah it's, it's in like the eyes of men <laughs> yeah in the eyes of men and so that's um and even in art criticism like we do have documents where um art critics are saying oh you know this particular artist would be much better you know doing their paper flower cutouts because they were looking at craft in a, and this is where our denigration of craft comes from too that's associated with the feminine Stuff. so they're kind of like don't know you're not really good enough to be a professional painter just go and do your crafty stuff instead you know it's that hierarchy it's very gendered yeah and I, think we, I mean I think that's we are getting better at that but I think that that kind of does still persist sometimes mm-hmm. mm. so these women that you talk about that went to the academy were they mothers as well um this is where I'm not I don't know a lot about their biography um I know that Lebrun had one daughter and I think her name was Jeanne and she actually appears in lots of her portraits um I don't know their story very well I think I think um this little girl was in lots of portraits and so she would have been very close to her mother at that time but for some reason I think later in life their relationship kind of disintegrated I'm not really sure why um but you know, she was her mother was painting her, so she was subject matter. Um, and there are, of course, other artists, um, especially in the twentieth century, who have used um, and postmodern period as well, um, who have used their children as part of their artworks. Mm. Yeah, because that's something I'm really interested in: is that the, this challenge between their work and their role as a mother? Is that something that women artists have faced in the past? I mean, I'm sure they Absolutely. have. But can you see? Can you see it? in the work or does it come out in the work or is it is it something that you you can research if that makes sense um there's there oh wow it's like you know there's so many different ways of being an artist and there's so many different ways of being a woman and so many different ways of being a mother um so I think um like for example um Barbara Hepworth um I'm just pulling out examples as I think of them Barbara Hepworth was a sculptor and her work is quite um, abstract, but I know that she um, she really considered being a mother integral to her practice. 
Um, I, I don't know a lot about her work, but I know that she did consider her children to be um, as much like very influential on her. Like she loved being a mother and she thought that was really important to her practice. But I also know that there are lots of um, artists, like feminist artists, who um, would have loved to have children but didn't have children because they knew having children would have a big, like a detrimental impact on their career. So there are artists who have consciously made the choice not to have children. Um, Louise Bourgeois is another artist and I think she had five children. She, again, thrived on being a mother. Um, I'm not sure how that shaped her practice for her. Um, but there's another artist, Berth Morisot, um, an impressionist artist, and her daughter is, again, provides subject matter for her. We have lots of um, images where you see her daughter making an appearance. Um, and I think she, I think her daughter was a model for other artists as well. So in, in lots of ways, children have been subject matter for artists. Um, in other ways, they've just, you know, I suppose, been around and provided their mums with energy and you know, I don't. Yeah, it's it's very it's um, very different for all artists. I think um, I I have friends who are mothers and artists now, and I know a couple of them. Motherhood is a very like it's a central theme in their practice. Um, their work is very specifically about motherhood and about their children. So I think I kind of get the sense that it's easier to make that kind of artwork now. Um, than it has been like in the early modern period, for example. Yeah, the other thing I, I wanted to say too is um, just going back to the early modern period, uh, there's lots of artists, um, this is another thing that's really sad, there's lots of other artists who are very, very good painters, but a lot of their work has been lost or destroyed. So a lot of their work we just don't even know and we don't have record of. And there are other artists working in the Baroque and Renaissance periods, for example, where their work has, that we, we're starting to learn now, their work has been misattributed to male artists. Oh. So there's a lot of stuff we just don't know yet. Um, hopefully we, we do uncover more, but, you know, um, there are other artists who are very prolific and then they have children and you know, their career finishes or slows down or some artists have been fortunate enough to have husbands who are very, very supportive and have nurtured their careers. Other artists, um, I can't remember her name now. I read this in passing the other day. Um, she was a composer. She was forbidden to practice by her husband when she had children. Yeah. And so she just stopped. And I think... I'm trying to think of her name. It's just escaped me, which is really terrible. Um, she was associated with the Bauhaus artists, though. Um, I think what happened with her is she stopped practicing, but it took a, over a period of years. It took an enormous toll on her health and well-being. Mm. And for some reason, I think her husband was um, convinced. Actually, no, you need to let her do her work again. And so she did do some work before she died, but. She lost a lot of time. Yeah. Wow, that's I'm trying to think of what her name was. I have to, I'll have to go back through um, the book that I was reading the other day and find her name for you if you're interested. Oh. Um, because she's yeah, a composer. Yeah. Um, I think her husband. I'm not sure if he was an artist, but he was definitely associated with the Bauhaus school, which is designers and artists in Germany. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I don't, it's just something that I came across the other day. I don't know very much about that, about her, 
but I, that just kind of really struck me. Yeah. Yeah. Terribly yeah. sad. So I think there's a lot more we could we could say, but it hasn't been written and recorded or researched yet, or it hasn't been found. Yeah. Or it's been yeah. erased. Yeah. In terms of your identity as a mother, I ask all my guests this question about, I do the air quotes, is it important to you to be more than just a mum? And I say just a mum because I know that's not a correct statement, but is it important to you to keep that identity and not become mum, just mum? Absolutely. Um, For me, it's vital. Um, And I think, again, as I was saying earlier, I think that's a really big part of my mental health, you know, being an artist, I guess, is at the core of my identity and I think it always has been. Um, but also for, in terms of my children looking at me, I think, you know, it's important for both of them, not just my daughter, but for my son too, to see that, you know, women, even in their roles as mothers and nurturers, they're multifaceted, multidimensional beings. And, you know, we have our own interests, not just career or art-wise, um, have our own likes and dislikes and responses to things we have our own feelings around stuff um you know things impact us as much as they impact someone else we we hold everything together but we need to be looked after as well and sometimes we need to look after ourselves and you know that's critical it's absolutely critical and you know one day we're not going to be doing the the um the intense hands-on mothering where our children are so dependent on us they're going to go and live their own lives and you know they need to they need to acknowledge that we have our own lives going on as well and we need to acknowledge that we need to take that and we need to hold on to that um because otherwise you know there's so much I think there's so much potential loss if you don't hold on hold on to something for yourself um and I I can't imagine what that would be like um also yeah I and I also feel like as a, as a mother myself, I never wanted to be that authoritarian, just just mum kind of person. I wanted to be a friend. I wanted to be someone that they would, you know, feel comfortable coming to or um, want to have around later on in life when they're doing their own thing. Do you know? Um, I don't want to just be the mum who does everything for everybody. I, I want to be the person who is counted on as a friend as well. Yeah, mm. I think... Yeah, I think it's um, motherhood, being a mother is a multidimensional thing. It's not just, yep, you do the shopping, the cooking, the cleaning, taking the kids to school, changing the nappies. It's much more than that. Like there's there's a whole unique, amazing individual underneath all of that and that person still needs to live, like, you know, and they need to, they need to thrive like everybody else does. Mm. Yeah, and yeah. So it's important, it's obviously important to you for your children to see that in you, to recognise. Yeah. yeah, yeah, because otherwise they're not getting the best of me. And I know that, of course, there are days they're not getting the best of me because I'm tired and worn out and I haven't given myself enough time or something, but that's my responsibility, right? Like, you know, I can't, I was saying to my um cousin who's a single father the other day he's really struggling um being a single dad in lockdown sometimes and I said to him like if you don't if you don't put self-care at the top of your list 
you cannot be the best dad for your child long term you can't sustain it like you do have to look after yourself mm. Mm. yeah whatever for, and that looks different for everybody yeah you know, like, that's it yeah absolutely I really value the stay-at-home mum as well as much as I do the working mum you know I think we've got to be careful of um not sort of uh I worry sometimes that we diminish the role that mums have if they choose to opt out of a career because they want to stay at home. I think that's a really powerful, meaningful, valuable thing to do. I think that's incredible. I know that I'm not capable of that. But I also know that mums who are doing that, even if they're not working in a job that's paid and acknowledged, it's more important for them to maintain a sense of their identity because you know otherwise yeah. there's a danger of losing themselves in that and then when the kids leave like I was saying what's left you know they need to have something that's just for them for themselves do you know what being a mum is bloody difficult it's probably one of the hardest jobs in the whole world it is the hardest job in the whole world for lots of different reasons I think like it's it's incredibly tough and I think yeah like I was saying I think doing the stay-at-home mum thing is the toughest gig of all and I know that I'm not capable of that I have an, an immense um, admiration for people who are doing that they deserve everything they deserve all the credit and they deserve that time out and they deserve being looked after and um, acknowledged and honoured and supported and I, I worry that they don't get that enough I worry that even as women we don't give them that enough So I guess then that sort of leads me into the the concept of mum guilt. I think after, you know, after um, the podcast that you're doing, I think you're becoming the expert on this. <laughs> so I would love to know um, what you think on that. Um, I think, you know what, I think I know that I've definitely suffered um, mother guilt um, for a different reason. Um, again, there's a couple of strands of thinking here that I've got. So I think the whole thing with mum guilt, I think, is reflective of a deeply patriarchal society that we live in. And what I'm going to say is I don't think that it's, and I'm trying to be careful about how I word this, I don't think it's necessarily men who are telling us to feel guilty. I feel like we're doing that to each other. Um, I feel like I'll give an example of this. When I when I had my children, I was super, super lucky. I was able to breastfeed really easily. Like I had absolutely no problem. I loved it. And it was it was just like bang, away I went. My cousin had a child um, not long after, and she found it incredibly difficult to breastfeed. She tried everything she could think of and she was in agony. And I don't really know the particulars but I know she really she gave it a good crack and she ended up um having her um her baby bottle fed and this no so this is like 18 years ago too it's not like yesterday so I, I need to say things are changing but you know the pressure and the judgment and the criticism that she got for that choice came from other women and she really struggled with that guilt for a long time of like I can't feed my child the way everyone's telling me I should be. I'm not a good mum. And I'm like, that. that is to me 
one of the most damaging things that we can do um, is judging um, each other and not supporting each other. I think living in a patriarchal society means that if you're socialised as a heteronormative woman or girl, you're also taught that we're in competition with each other um, in lots of different ways. And I think that comes out in motherhood too. Like if your child isn't sleeping all the way through at six weeks, you're doing something wrong. If you take a day home by yourself and you're not working, you're doing something wrong. If you can't breastfeed, you're doing something wrong. If you don't give birth naturally, you're doing something wrong. So I think I really feel like, certainly for me, that's where a lot of guilt initially came from. I don't really do that anymore. Like sometimes I kind of struggle with putting myself first. Like I bang on about that all the time, but I'm not always very good at doing that. But, you know, um, my guilt or my shame, I should say shame, came from experiencing postnatal depression with my son. You know, I felt such shame for that um, because I really, at that time, I don't believe it anymore, but at that time I really felt like I wasn't a good mum. And, you know, and I think the other thing is it's not always what we say to women, it's what we don't say to women. You know, we at that time, I know it's different now, I know it's changing, but at that time people weren't really talking about postnatal depression and I was terrified. I thought, you know what, if I tell my doctor that something's not right, I think they might say that I don't deserve to have my child. <laughs> like, you know, I was honestly, I was, I was petrified. And then when things kind of settled down for me and I was on medication, I just had that overwhelming shame like I'm not good enough I'm not doing I'm not doing a good enough job like I'm not as amazing as that lady over there with her five kids is you know like I was so in love with this little baby but I couldn't get it right and something was wrong and I couldn't understand it mm. so I think um yeah I think that's the closest that I've really had to that full-on mum guilt and I just kind of feel like we we need to do more as women to encourage and support each other but talk about and this is why I think your podcast is so amazing we need to share all the crap stuff because there is so much crap stuff I'm sorry (laughs) being a mum is amazing and it's an honor and it's a privilege but there is so much crap in it there is so much stuff that hallelujah (laughs) there's so much stuff that hurts there's so much stuff that's ugly and demoralizing and upsetting and so so many things that um other people just don't understand but you know we need to at least acknowledge it and we need to we need to tell our own children you know what childbirth isn't easy and it's okay if you feel like shit after you've had your child like it's okay like all of these things are okay and it's normal and a million other people are doing it too because it's so um and you know like I I learnt so much from that um experience and I think it's it certainly taught me things so that hopefully I can be a much more empathetic um, mother, friend, whoever I need to be for someone else who might go through that. But, um, you know, like there's so much unnecessary suffering and all that. Um, it's, I don't know, I just kind of remember how confusing it all was too because I desperately wanted my son. Like I, he was a baby I literally prayed for. Like, you know, I wasn't interested in becoming a mother for the longest time. And then all of a sudden I was desperate, wanted, wanted to have this baby. 
and he didn't come for a while. And then when he did come and then I had him and I was looking in his eyes, I, I was absolutely, honestly, had never felt such love. But at the same time, I was petrified out of my mind. And I was really sad and anxious. I felt like, oh, my God, I've, I'm going to break this thing. I'm going to do something wrong. And then the, the more I plummeted into that anxiety and depression, I thought if I say anything to anybody, they're going to take my baby. Like they, yeah. in the very, very early days before I told my doctor, um, I thought someone's going to take him away from me. And I think that's why I didn't say anything. Um, of course, I didn't want to be judged. Um, I did talk to my parents about it. I talked to, um, you know, my son's grand grandmother about it as well very early on, and they're the ones who actually kind of steered me over to the doctor to get some medication, thank goodness, because um, I wasn't in a very good way. So, um, and, you know, I, yeah, it takes a really long time to get your head around that and a really long time to to say those words, but they're so important. And I and I think this is another reason why I think your podcast is so immensely valuable because I think if someone had just said to me 18 years ago, it will be okay and you were going to do great and you're going to do all these other things too, I think that would have made a big difference. Like, and you're not a bad mum and you're an amazing mum. You just need a little bit of support like everyone does. Mm. So yeah, thank goodness. I think I think things are changing. Um, I think we are starting to talk about ment mental health in the mainstream much more than we did. But um, yeah, geez, first time mother, that's crippling. It's really crippling. Yeah. But again, I think you know, I think there's a there's a there's a real depth of knowledge and wisdom that comes from that experience too I think I didn't have postnatal depression with my daughter at all I had the postnatal depression with my son and that was a tra very traumatic birth um, and I think, yeah, maybe it was a PTSD thing. Um, the, I think the reason maybe I didn't have postnatal depression with my daughter is because I said, I'm not doing that again. I'm having the cesarean, thanks. Because, um, you know, I sustained some injuries and things as well. And like that was, that was quite an ordeal for me. And I think because I made that decision early, that might've had a bit of an impact. Um, but I remember with my son too, like, there were nights where I just didn't sleep. And I think that's that's the thing, you know, that was the big thing. I just did not sleep. And not not because he was a bad sleeper, but I literally couldn't sleep. And I remember one of the nurses who came to the house to check in on me and stuff, she said to me, oh, well, when you can't sleep, why don't you just use that time to do your painting? And I was just like, I can't because I literally was paralysed. I felt sometimes like I was paralysed. And yeah that's a really hard space to be in and being creative I couldn't read a book mm. like I honestly couldn't read a book so I think um to to create work when you're in that space is I, I think it's probably impossible mm. it's like you're barely functioning 
it's like having a shower was just like wow this big achievement I know yeah, I know yeah, yeah absolutely and like when you say it now it seems like so unreal but wow the energy that that takes it's uh-huh. incredible like yeah um can't it's something that you just can't be understated how um how debilitating that is and how we really need to support people who are in that I was going to say, I've always been um, very opinionated (laughs) and um, having that experience on these kinds of issues has made me even more opinionated and more vocal and, you know, sometimes I get quite angry and I think because it's like, yeah, I I know what that's like, but, you know, even like to go back to that thing about the breastfeeding thing, yep, I had an awesome experience, I had an awesome pregnancy, but when I hear about someone who's not having that same experience and who's really struggling and are being judged and criticised for it, I become equally passionate about that because I'm like, this is not okay. Like, you know, we need to be supportive of each other, especially women. We need to be supportive of each other, whatever our experiences and choices are, whether that's around motherhood, birth, career or not, whatever whatever that looks like, mm. um, whatever our choices are, we really need to you know support that I think that's the most powerful thing we can do mm. it's like, interesting put, put away that judgment yeah it's interesting why do we judge each other like that like is it because is it does it go back to days of having to compete for the affections of men or something so you put other women down so it makes you look better like is it why do we do it? <laughs> I'm not I'm not real I don't really know but I have I have read that in a patriarchal culture, like a Western patriarchal culture, women are socialised to to be in competition with with each other, and we are kind of socialised to think that there's um, limitations on resources and, you know, limitations on access to men and all of these kinds of crazy things. Like if you want to, you know, I mean, it, it goes back into history too. Like if you look way back into history, like it was really important to be engaged by a particular time in your life, and if you weren't engaged and married. It was a serious problem, you know, and so people were, like even if you watch Jane Austen. Oh, I know. Like I was that, about to say. Those, yeah. There's all those threads that, you know, women are in competition with each other because they want to get the best pick of the of the man to have them, you know, to validate who they are as women and people in society. It's crazy. Mm. I think we've been doing that for a very long time and not just not just around men. I think, you know, just as we... Um, frame ourselves as women in relation to each other and our positions in society we might not think that consciously but I think that's it's embedded in our collective consciousness or something somewhere it's like yeah you know a baby cries and we have that no one says when your baby cries you have to do this thing you are compelled like your your urge is to go and check your baby pick it pick the baby up and do particular things because um that's what you're built to do and I think there are, I mean, we're animals. I think these things are so deeply embedded in our um, primal brain and our collective consciousness and all those things that I'm not familiar, like I don't, I don't have enough knowledge on that, but I think that's got a big part to do with it. Mm. Um, but I think we, you know, we're acknowledging it and talking about it. So hopefully that's a really big step in um, starting to dismantle some of that stuff.
in all of the things that I've said, I should also, um, you know, definitely point out that in all the the competitiveness and things that we've been talking about, there are some amazing communities that you find that you do find for yourself where you do get that support and that friendship which is absolute gold and you know um, for me I've found that with two um, two women when my son went to kindy so it took me it took me a long time to find that but you know I've maintained those friendships for the last 14 years now and I always will um, you know it's incredible what we've um, you know the friendship that we've given to each other this whole time and it's unconditional mm. you know like it it's it yeah it's really unconditional um so th there is there is all of that richness and that beauty there too but I, yeah I'd really like it if that became the norm <laughs> like if that was the bigger story and the other things that we that we've been discussing were you know rare incidents we can talk but about you know what, in history that used to happen back yeah, then yeah exactly but you know what you're saying now too about the competitiveness thing I um I actually get such a thrill I'm always so excited when I see anybody regardless of gender or whether or not they're a mum or dad I get such a kick out of seeing people take their own initiative and do their own stuff and make their own things happen mm. and so yeah I'd like to tell you you know the you you're taking your own initiative to do this podcast when I when I first found out about it I was so excited about it because I thought wow this is this is something that you're doing it's your own project because you care about it and it's meaningful and it's you know it's sustaining you it's wonderful but you're also giving such a gift to to so many people so well done that, that is a very that's a very very long way away from being competitive that's that's incredibly generous and um it's really wonderful to see thank you that's very kind of you to that's say right. that's okay <laughs> it's exciting it's wonderful and, and you know what it's actually a really brave thing to do too to, to do a podcast and to share and you know to talk to people about all this kind of stuff Um, I'm at the moment I'm taking some time out to experiment and explore in my practice because this year already I've had um, working for exhibitions and I've been teaching and studying as well so I'm sort of on a little bit of a like I've got little bits of um, paid work happening um, but in terms of exhibitions and stuff for the rest of the year I, I don't have anything on the go at the moment I'm just taking this time to um, play with ideas and materials in my studio and have a bit of a break yeah. too probably for oh, four exhibitions yes. that's full on <laughs> yeah oh my gosh they they were amazing but um because of COVID um it meant that some exhibitions were pushed forward um and it all it was all just in the timing um so you know three exhibitions were pretty much back to back um and two uh, two um exhibitions I had open in the one week but it was uh, pretty intense <laughs> it was pretty intense and so it was kind of like yes I need time to recover I also need time to just play like I just need to play with my materials and um I've already I've already got ideas for my next um series of work but I just want to you know explore the potential of different um techniques and materials at the moment um to kick that all off with and just take a bit of a breather
you know, I'll tell you something really funny. I will never forget this. Um, when I was doing my PhD, I had to, I was doing full-time study and then I had to go down to part-time and stuff. So my PhD took a little bit longer than I thought it would. And I remember my son said to me one day, see that little girl walking around over there? And that was my daughter. He said, that's your PhD. <laughs> so, because I, when I was doing my PhD, six months in, I fell pregnant. I didn't realise that this was going to happen. Fell pregnant and I had my daughter and I was still doing my PhD when she was like three. Um, you know, I kind of submitted not that long after, but he was like, there's your PhD running around over there, mum. And I'm like, oh, my God. Oh, my God. <laughs> it was, and it was quite startling because... Yeah. I already knew, like I was already, when he said that, I was sort of like in the process of um, winding it all up and, you know, I was on the home stretch, but he was like, there she is, that's the PhD. <laughs> wow. That's okay. gold. That is gold. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's like making visible the the length that it has taken me to do this thing. Yeah. And all the effort that you've put into her rather than the PhD, it's just it's yeah. channeled elsewhere. Oh, yes. gosh, that is hilarious. Thank you very much, Melanie. It's been an absolute pleasure having you on. I've thoroughly enjoyed our chat and uh, all the best with everything you've got coming up. Thank you so much, Alison, and congratulations on a fantastic podcast. I wish you all the best um, for the future in this fantastic project that you have. It's been really fun talking to you today. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you so much, Alison.